to Telestai. Immediately, before breathing his last breath, Jesus loudly cried out one final word on the cross, to Telestai. One word with a critical meaning. It is finished. It is completed, brought to an end, accomplished with finality. After Satan had shamed, beaten, mocked, tortured, and crucified the Son of God. As the devil celebrated because he had done his worst. Jesus didn't just whisper out a meager resolution. I'm finished. Exhausted, giving up, surrendering to death and the enemy. Oh no, he declared it for all eternity. It is finished. The law was made perfect. Jesus had obeyed his father's will. It is finished. God's righteous wrath had collided with God's perfect grace and love. Justice had been satisfied. Reconciliation between flawed humanity and a holy God was made possible. It is finished. The Son allowed people to see a glimpse of the Father. He brought light to the nations. It is finished. The messianic prophecies had been fulfilled. The veil was torn. The Old Testament sacrificial system was now obsolete. Jesus Christ became the blameless sacrifice for every sin. Once and for all, the debt was paid in full. Now and for always. It is finished. There is nothing more for you or me to add. Your good works are insufficient to appease a holy God. Turning over a new leaf will get you nothing eternal. Your striving for perfection will never be good enough to improve on what Jesus has already done. It is finished. Your poverty nor your prosperity will earn you reconciliation with God. You cannot give enough, acquire enough, or deprive yourself enough to profit God's favor. And you will never be able to attend enough religious gatherings to add anything to his completed work on the cross. Your performance, your talent, your intellect are all deficit for salvation. It is finished. An extra special word or understanding is not required. You don't need a new revelation from a preacher, a prophet, a teacher, book, blog, friend, or even yourself. It is finished. Anything you try to add to his completed work in order to be made right with God is impotent. Perhaps even insulting. And actually heretical. It is finished. So what does one do when the work of salvation is complete? Believe and repent. Rest. Worship and give thanks. Rejoice and share. Believe that Jesus is Lord and has fully paid the debt of salvation. Repent from your belief in your own self-sufficiency and follow Jesus exclusively. It is finished. Rest. Quit striving for God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. The work is done. Accept it. Rest in it. And live every day in the gospel. Worship and give thanks. Give him the glory that he is due. 
express gratitude for his mercy and his grace. It is finished. Rejoice and share. Doesn't everyone need to know about this freedom? Praise Jesus. It It is is finished. finished. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for this time for us to gather, Lord, even if it's not physically present, Father, for us to worship together, for us to rejoice over you. Father, as we spend this time digging into your word, Lord, as we, as we go back through the story of what you accomplished through your son, Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts in new ways, Lord, that your word would speak clearly during this time and that it would speak powerfully, God, that it would change us. Father, we pray that you would just, uh, that you, your spirit would be involved in this time, convicting our hearts, Lord, both of your beauty and even of our sinfulness. God, we pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. It was midday, probably about 3 p.m. There's debate over exactly what year this happened. This would have been either 30 or 33 AD, but either way, we generally know exactly when it happened and what was going on, right? It was, it was in the midst of the Jewish Passover. The Jewish Passover was one of the highest holidays uh, of the ancient Jews. It was a time to remember what had happened in ancient Egypt when God had delivered his people out of slavery and bondage where they had been for 430 years and, uh, and brought them out and took them into a promised land right? That, that's what the Passover was celebrating. So as the Jews were rejoicing in this time, even though, even though the Exodus had taken place 1,500 years prior, this was still a central feature to their religion and to their understanding of who they were, God's deliverance of them. And not, not, only, was it, not only was it a past event, but it was also something that caused them to turn their eyes to look forward to the future, Recognizing, appreciating, believing that not only would God, not only, um, not only had God's redemption happened then, but God's redemption was going to happen again in a very similar way. You see, the Jewish people were under bondage currently. They were under the bondage of Rome and they were expecting a Messiah to come. They were expecting a Christ to come who would set them free from this bondage. That's what their Passover was celebrating. Their Passover was celebrating a return a return of a Messiah to free them, a deliverer to free them from their shekels, from their chains. In fact, Jesus and his disciples had just been celebrating that just the night before. They had, they, they had gathered together and they had partaken in this Passover meal together. Passover meal, looking back at what happened with expectations about the future. That was the Last Supper. But of course, all of this, all of this only lays the background for the story that we're talking about, right? All of this is only the background of the darkest day of human history. The light that came into the world was about to be darkened. The truth would be called deceit. The bread would be broken. The door would be shut. The shepherd would be abandoned. The vine would wither. The life that came to give life to all was about to be overtaken by death. Now, how, how does that even make sense? What does it mean for the life to no longer live? 
The uh, previous night had gone from celebration to mourning. As Jesus and his disciples had gone out to, to, to the garden, to the garden, and they had prayed, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they, they were overtaken, right? Jesus' disciples departed. Jesus was taken into captivity. Then, late in the evening still, he met before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin gathered together and they condemned him. They didn't have any, they didn't have any genuine crimes against him, but they condemned him regardless. Now, the Sanhedrin, they didn't have the power that they needed to actually condemn him to death. The only people that could do that because they were under, because they were under Roman servitude, the only way that they could actually, they could actually execute someone was by bringing that person to the Romans themselves. So first thing in the morning, they brought him to the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate, for fictitious crimes that he had never committed. Um, Basically, it amounted to insurrection. They were accusing him of attempting to overtake Rome and to be, into raising up a rebellion. Now, as Pontius Pilate, as he met with Jesus, as he explored these accusations, he quickly was able to assess that there was no merit in what was being said. It wasn't accurate. This was not a king who was looking to take over Rome. This was a king with a spiritual kingdom and a following of disciples. Pontius Pilate, therefore, he had no desire to act upon these accusations. But fearing the wrath of the Jewish people and fearing what could potentially come of it. Rather, he handed Jesus off to, uh, to, to a different ruler, to Herod Antipas up in, uh, up in Galilee. By doing so, he was attempting to allay the wrath of the Jews. Of course, he wasn't genuinely concerned about the wrath of God. He sent him up to Herod Antipas. Herod saw him. Herod was more interested, though, in seeing miracles. He wasn't interested in hearing about the actual accusations. He wasn't hearing and actually, he wasn't really all that interested in learning whether or not Jesus was guilty or he wasn't guilty. What he was interested in was amusing himself. When he found that there was nothing, there was nothing that he could do with Jesus, he sent him back down to Pontius Pilate saying, this is a Roman matter. He sent him back down. So again, Pontius Pilate is in the same problem. What do I do with this person, Jesus? So he took him and he had him beaten. A fustigatio is what is referred to as the Latin word. Fustigatio, it's a severe beating, but it was one that was, it was, for, um, it was for lower crimes. Not, not, not severe, not heinous crimes. But he had him beaten regardless, hoping that maybe, maybe that would be enough for the Jewish people. He brought him back before the Jews and he said, is this enough? Are, are, are you satisfied? Is this good? And the people wanted more blood. They cried out for more blood saying, no, crucify him. So Pontius Pilate washed his hands. He washed his hands and he handed him over to be condemned. The first step of the condemnation was the weberatio. Again, another Latin word. This was, this was the severest of beatings someone could get. And in fact, it was, only, it was reserved for those who were going to be crucified. You see, the Romans, they were experts at dragging out human suffering. They were experts at it. They could, take, they could make it go on and on. And so this, the Weberatio, this was, this was an occasion where they would take a, a whip-like thing, a cat of nine tails. They had, they had, they had ceramics built into it. They had... Um, metal shards and such, and they would use it to whip a person. And with it, they were actually able to tear the flesh off of their back from so much beating. And in fact, it was to such a degree that it would actually leave the vital organs exposed. 
This, this is the beating. This is the suffering that Jesus went through. On top of that, once that was finished, they would take the cross. They would take the cross piece, the horizontal piece of the cross, and Jesus would have had to have carried it up the hill, up to Golgotha. He would have carried it through the city first and up to Golgotha. And from there, they would... Um, and from there, they would nail his hands then, or not his hands really, but his wrists. They would nail his wrists to that horizontal piece. And then it would be hoisted up. The vertical piece would already be fixed in the ground. It would be hoisted up and dropped into place and attached there. And then his feet would have been nailed in. And that's where he would have been crucified. Now, the crucifixion and all these events around it, the crucifixion, this was reserved for the most heinous crimes in ancient Rome. This isn't something the, that would happen to someone for committing a simple theft, committing a simple robbery. Maybe even murder w- wouldn't actually earn you a crucifixion. In fact, most murders wouldn't. The, this would have been something far more severe. But they, they, they heaped it all upon him. Again, the idea was that they could drag this out as long as possible. So once he was hung upon the cross, victims of the cross could potentially hang there for days suffering. The thing that eventually would kill them was that they wouldn't have the ability to continue to pull themselves up by their nail-driven wrists and nail-driven feet so that they could continue to breathe. So eventually they would asphyxiate. Eventually they would die. So that it's the reason why we see in the Gospels that when the Roman soldiers actually come around to, to the three people on the cross and they come to Jesus, they're surprised. Their attempt was to break his legs so that he would no longer be able to breathe, which would speed up the execution process so that he wouldn't be hanging there on the Sabbath. However, Jesus was already gone, and so there was surprise in that. Again, this was the most, this was the most heinous forms of punishment. In fact, this punishment wasn't even so much about punishing the individual It was more about a warning to everyone else because it was so public so that people would see those who were crucified and recognize that that's what happens when you do those crimes. When you commit those sorts of crimes, this is what will happen to you, right? Of course, the irony then is to see the explosion of Christianity in ancient Rome after these events. It did the exact opposite. What was meant to deter people from following in Jesus's footsteps actually only incited them all the more. So there under a swelling bruised sky, Jesus would cry out his final cry this side of death. John, John chapter 19 verses 28 to 30 records it. It states, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. Um, sour wine, so this would have been like a vinegar wine. It was a very common thing for the Jewish shoulder, for the, or, I'm sorry, for the Roman soldiers to carry on them. Um, it wouldn't have helped to numb the pain in any way. In fact, it might have actually exacerbated it all the more. But uh, yeah, so just a little bit of background on that. So they put a sponge on a full. They, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "It is finished," and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus' final statement there, it is finished. It's actually only, it's only just one word in Greek. It's the word to telestai. You heard it previously mentioned tonight. 
Though it's only one word, that doesn't diminish the profundity of Jesus' utterance of this one word. It's a hugely significant word. In general, the Greek verb denotes carrying out a a task or fulfilling one's obligations. And so it can be translated either as it's finished or it was completed or it was accomplished, something along those lines. There are two things I really want to highlight about Jesus' utterance of tetelestai, though. Two things I want to focus on. The first thing is that it, it was a fulfillment. It was a fulfillment. You see, the events that were, ha- the, the events that were happening, these weren't unexpected. The cross wasn't an accidental happenstance. Rather, it was all part of the plan from eternity past. Prior to the establishment of the world, it was planned that this would happen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He, being Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the times, in the last times, for the sake of you. Right? This was foreknown even before the foundation of the world, before anything else had happened. This was known, that this was going to happen, that eventually, eventually all of these events would lead to this moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all part of the plan. It wasn't unexpected. You see, this was a a planned incursion into fallen humanity. This wasn't bad luck for Jesus. This This wasn't as though Jesus had failed. Rather, this was success. Jesus was victorious every step of the way. Every step of the way, he was exactly where he wanted to be. One of, one of my family's children, children's Bibles that we use regularly, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sandra Lloyd-Jones, um, she writes it this way, and I think she nails it. Um, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his desire to love us and to fulfill God's will. That's what held him there. He was exactly where he wanted to be. He accomplished all that he intended to do. He finished it. But what exactly is the it that he finished? What did he accomplish? John's not at all ambiguous about this. John wants us to know. He makes the point clear as we read through the gospel of John. Jesus' mission can be summarized best as coming to do the will of the Father. Coming to do the will of God. John Chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That word accomplish there, that's the same Greek word that we're looking at. It is finished, to telestai. It's the same work. It's the same word. So what does it mean then for him to, to, him to uh, fulfill it, for him to do it? It means for him to do the will of God. Look at another passage with me. John chapter 5, verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Again, that word for accomplish, it's the same word. It's to telestai. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish. So what is he accomplishing? What is he fulfilling? Well, he's fulfilling the works that the Father had given to him. And he was successful in that. Look at John chapter 17, verse 4. So this is a prayer. This is a prayer that happened just before the the nights or just before the events that we're looking at right now. This is a prayer that Jesus offered up to the Father. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
He had accomplished it. He had fulfilled it. He had finished it. And what all, what all then did these events include, right? Because we're talking about doing the will of God. We're talking about fulfilling all the works and all the things that, that the father had called the son to do, had called Jesus to do. But what exactly are those things? What are those things that Jesus was successful at? Well, he was successful in all that he taught. He was successful in his miracles. He was successful in living the perfect spotless life. He was successful in fulfilling the Mosaic law. He was successful in fulfilling all prophecy. He was successful when Judas Iscariot betrayed him. He was successful when Peter denied him. He was successful when he was scourged. He was successful when he was nailed to the cross. He was successful as he hung there proclaiming it is finished. He was successful in disarming the rulers and authorities. He was successful in overcoming Satan. He was successful in bearing our sins. He was successful in shouldering the wrath of God. He was successful in redeeming a people for God. He was successful in reconciling us to God. He was successful in separating us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He was successful in justifying us in his righteousness. He was successful in bringing glory to the Father. He was successful in all of these things. He accomplished them. It is finished. So, so then, was this a tragic cry that he cried from the cross? Is this the sort of cry that you and I would cry as we're hanging on the cross? No, this was a cry of victory. This was a cry of success. It is finished. This is a barbaric howl of a conquering warrior. That's what this is. This this isn't a mark of brokenness. Rather, in his brokenness, in the brokenness of our king, his reign was established. In his shame, he was glorified. John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. So whereas the rest of the world looked on that event and they saw Jesus and they they thought he's been shamed. No one's going to follow him now. Look at him. He's clearly not the Messiah. He's clearly not the Christ that they had expected. That's what the rest of the world saw. The rest of the world only saw his brokenness and his meagerness. But in that moment, in the moment of his most intense pain, in the moment of his brokenness, his glory was most manifest. He was the most glorious. Right? There was this false sense of victory that the world had against Christ, thinking that he had been undone. But really, in his undoing, he undid their efforts. There's another note, though. There's another element about about it is finished, about tetelestai that I want to draw out, that it's final. There's a finality about it. Tetelestai was used in New Testament times for finances and for commerce. Um, you, you would receive a bill. You would receive a bill in Tetelestai. Once that bill had been paid, Tetelestai would be, would be marked across the top of that bill. It was a way to show that it had been paid in full. The bill was finished. The accounts were balanced. And the transaction was done. It was entirely paid. This payment that Jesus, that Jesus made on our behalf It's not a partial payment. This was a complete payment, right? We're not still chipping away. We're not trying to make payments back. It's done. And besides, even if it wasn't done, our our contributions would be so meager. What's the point of them anyways? But we don't need to because it's done. It's paid in full, 
right? It would be like going to, uh, it'd be like going to make a payment on your mortgage or on student loans. You go, you write the check off, you go to send it in, and all of a sudden you realize someone else has stepped into your, pay, your place and made that payment for you. And, and they didn't just pay that one month. Rather, they paid the entirety of it. The entirety of it. It's all done. Now, you, you, you don't call your financial institution and say, hey, I recognize this is all paid off, but can I continue just to make contributions? Because you guys have been swell. I really like you. So I'd like to keep giving you my money. No, that, that's not how we would respond, right? It's done. It's finished. What you should do is, is run for it in case there was some kind of a paper error or something like that. You don't want to get caught still having to pay that money. Just playing. Don't actually run away. That would probably be a bad thing. But the point is, is that this is finished. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. What do you do when someone else pays your bill for you? There's nothing else you can do. There's nothing else for us to contribute to it except to rest in that completed gracious work. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. You see, that word there for finished, that's the same word that we've been looking at. In the, uh, in the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, that's, it uses the same root word for tetelestai. God had finished his great creative work on the, on the sixth day. And just as God had finished, and then he rested on the seventh day, Jesus now in our passage finishes the work and he also rests. Look at John 19 again. John, uh, Jesus had finished his work. And the very next verse in the passage, in verse 31, we see that it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest. Jesus finished his work. And the very next thing is rest. Jesus' work and his life and his death was nothing short of bringing about a new creation. He brought the kingdom of God. He, got, he brought God's presence with us, right? This is what Jesus accomplished. And now, because of him and because of his finished work, we can enter into that rest. Tim Keller, a former senior pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, he, he put it this way. After creation, God said, it is finished, and he rested. After redemption, Jesus says, said, it is finished, and we can rest. Purportedly, Buddha's last words were, work hard to gain your own salvation. And, and this is what so many world religions teach, right? Because we all recognize that there's because we, we all recognize that there's a right and that there's a wrong. And we all recognize that on some level, we aren't attaining to it. We are all falling short. So then what, where does that leave us? Every religion, everyone needs an it is finished. And Christianity is the only one who supplies that. It is finished. Someone wants to pay that debt for you. Somebody wants to pay that because you can't do it. You haven't attained to it. You haven't arrived. Your only hope is to trust in Christ. 
Your only hope is to accept him, to embrace him in his death and in his resurrection and what he has accomplished for you. But then even still, many Christians have trusted in the gospel, who have trusted in the gospel, continue to try to prove to themselves, to others, and even to God that they have in some sense earned this, that they're good enough, that they deserve this. We put on masks not to, not to protect ourselves from coronavirus, but rather to hide the ugliness and the depths of our own sinfulness because we don't want others to know, because we don't even want to know ourselves. Instead of trusting that this is totally and completely finished, instead of genuinely resting in the gospel and what Christ has done, we attempt to justify ourselves and to repay Christ. Instead of living out of the gospel, we try to merit our salvation. But Christ is the only one. Christ has lived the life that you wouldn't live. He died the death that you should have died so that in him, so that as we trust in him and his completed work, we might be called the children of God and find our rest in him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 reads, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The great work of deliverance that the Passover lamb had purchased for ancient Israel had now been fully realized in Jesus' death. So we must trust in the great finishing work of Christ and his proclamation of Tetelestai. It is finished. The curtain has been torn that we might have access and enter into his rest. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much. We thank you for what you have accomplished through your son, Father. Lord, we thank you that he was willing to pay the price. We thank you that he is magnificent, that he is mighty, that he is glorious, that he is above all things, and that he could not be conquered by a piece of wood and some nails. Father, your son is glorious. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir our hearts to meditate upon these things and to be in awe of you. And Father, please provoke our hearts to worship. We pray this.